With that, turn in your Bible to uh, the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 1 is where we'll be today. Sounds wild back then. So the Psalms are poetry. Um, so it's a, it's a different, there's different genres in the Bible, and so the Psalms are, are, are poetry. And if you've ever read poetry, you know that poets seek to communicate ideas and truth uh, about reality in, in imaginative and creative ways. They use, they use language in ways that we don't typically use language just in a conversational way. Uh, and typically, it's, it's why it's hard to understand at times, and probably why, uh, if you don't like poetry, that's probably the reason you don't like poetry, is you don't understand poetry. Well, the Psalms are no different. They're still in this genre of poetry, but the one thing that is different about the Psalms is that they have a singular subject. And that singular subject is God. And so every poem, every poet that writes a psalm is focusing us in an imaginative and creative way about who God is in the reality of our lives. So that's what the psalms are. So I want you to keep that in mind as we begin this study in the psalms, and even as we read Psalm 1 this morning. Let me read this for us. This is God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to behold uh, wonderful and glorious things from your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, um, which we'll look at next week, but Psalm 1 has been called uh, the preface of the Psalms because it introduces this a major poetic theme that we see throughout, throughout the book of Psalms. So in Psalm 1, we we find the theme of the centrality of the law. So it was called the law then, amongst other things, but we we, we would refer to to that as as the Bible. So the law is the entirety of the Bible for us now. So in Psalm 1, the poet is laying out the direction that a person is carried when they are abiding by the law. And then in contrast, he shows where one is carried when they're not abiding in the law. So again, like last week that we saw in Matthew chapter 7, the text is showing us these these two ways in which a person could live their life. So one is with God, and then the other is apart from God. 
One is, is the narrow way that leads to life or the broad way that leads to destruction. And again, just to remind you, these are the only two options that the Bible gives to us. Either life or death. Either life with God or life apart from God. Those are the only two options. But for our text today, the poet is really placing a heavy emphasis on one of these ways that I would simply call the Christian life. And there are three angles of the Christian life that we can see in this psalm this morning, and they're there printed in your worship guide if you're taking notes. But the first is the desire of the Christian life. The second is the delight of the Christian life. And the third is the destiny of the Christian life. The desire, the delight, and the destiny. And you're welcome for those three Ds. Worked really hard on that. So first, the desire of the Christian life. In verse 1, the very first angle that you can see is what your desire should be as a Christian. And you can see this in the very first words of of the text. It says, in the ESV, it says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Or as the um, Christian Bible, uh, Standard Bible translates it, which I think is is a better translation here for this particular verse, says, how happy is the one. I love that. How happy is the one. Because the desire of everyone's life, I think you could say, is happiness. In uh, 2013, uh, Pharrell Williams uh, released a song called Happy. I know, he should apologize for that. Um, But he released a song, Happy, and I think it catches, I think at least in one line of the chorus, that it catches the sentiment of the culture and what we think about happiness. I mean, the entire song is an absolute disaster, just by the way. So as your pastor, i got to point you to good music and point you away from bad music. Don't let, don't let that play in your car on the way uh, to and fro, okay? But one of the lines in the chorus is, is this sentiment of our culture about happiness. He says, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. So just about everything we do is an attempt to make ourselves happy. From the people in your life that you surround yourself with, uh, to your job that you have, to the hobbies that you are pursuing, all of those things we pursue to try to make ourselves happy. But here, in Psalm 1, our poet friend says, none of this brings true happiness. Yes, it may bring some some temporary satisfaction. It may bring some, some joy that's fading already. But you and I both know that that doesn't last. You and I both know that that truly doesn't make you happy especially when you test it against suffering. That's not going to bring you through suffering. John Calvin asked the question, he says, if the pinnacle of happiness consists in the enjoyment of God's presence, is it not misery to be without it? 
Why would it be misery? Well, it's because true happiness is only found in Christ. True happiness is not what happiness means to you. True happiness is in Jesus. And the way in which you can tell someone is truly happy is by what they don't do. Which is to say, the way of sinners may seem like it brings happiness. The way of sinners may seem like it is right. But as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, he says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So whatever you think is making you happy right now, that is not from God, that is not Jesus, is not actually making you happy. It is not going to last. It is going to go away. Look at verse 1 again. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. So three things the psalmist writes for us here that the happy person does not do. So the happy person does not walk in wicked counsel. Uh, The happy person does not stand in the way of sinners. So if you remember Matthew chapter 7, the broad way that leads to to destruction, and many are on that broad way. And then third, the happy person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Essentially what that is saying there is the happy person, the one that is blessed by God, does not sit with those who mock God with their words and with their life. So those who walk in opposition to God are actually scoffers. They are mocking God. So the psalmist wants you to see the true desire of the Christian life is to be happy in Christ. The righteous person, like Job says in uh, chapter 21, verse 16, He keeps the counsel of the wicked far away from them. And so the poet here uses these these three kind of poetic sets that that all run parallel to each other here in verse 1, not only to show what a happy person looks like or, or doesn't look like, but also the downward slope of the ungodly. So This is what you have to understand. As one progresses in their sin they truly go from bad to worse. There is no kind of hovering above sin and just kind of staying on the surface of your sin. As you live in sin and as you commit sin, apart from from the forgiveness that you have uh, from God in Christ, if you continue to walk that road of sin, it will get worse and worse for you. That's why the Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And that's where all of your sin will lead you eventually, is death. So just look at the, look at the, the downward progression here. <coughs> the, the, the psalmist says, they first walk in the counsel of the wicked. So essentially what that means is that they are hanging around. 
They're, they're listening and, and, they're, and they're seeing this enjoyment, this false sense of happiness that is, that is happening amongst those who, who don't know Christ, who, who are walking in their sin and they're, they're hanging around those people and saying, I think I kind of want that. That looks like fun. And then, the psalmist says, then they stand in the way of sinners, which means that they begin to join in. They begin to partake of the sin that those sinners are involved in. And then finally, they sit in the seat of scoffers. And you know, when you sit, what are you doing but getting comfortable? So as you've reached that final step downward into sin, you have gotten so comfortable with sin that you may not even recognize that you are there. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, uh, essentially says that once you've reached this level of sin is that you have, you've, uh, you've pretty much received your, your PhD in sin. He says this, he says, They have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed. You're an expert at it now. Yet even as you see this obvious spiral downward, the writer's concentration is actually not focused primarily on warning you. That's not, that's not his, his goal here, but it's a lifting your eyes to where a, a person's true happiness arises. And that is found in the Christian's delight. In verse 2, the psalmist now comes off of this runway of what the happy person doesn't do to what they are doing, which is finding their delight, not in the world's delight, not in what the world delights in, but in the law of the Lord. This is the delights of the Christian, or at least it should be. Delighting in the Word of God, or not delighting in the Word of God, is actually what separates a Christian from a non-Christian. So let me just remind you of this, that there is not a category of people who can call themselves Christian and not be one who delights in the Word of God. Let me just say that again. There is not a category of people who can call themselves Christian and not be one who delights in the Word of God. This is what John Stott says about this verse. He says, delighting in the Word is an indication of the new birth. For the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So for the ancient Jew to say something like is said here in the Psalms, to say uh, that I delight in the law would be a lot like what you might mean if you said that you love history or you love physics. You love it so much that you want to, to learn more about it. You'll do everything and anything you can to get your hands on more information and more books about the particular subject. And you will tap into experts to learn more and more and to go deeper and deeper into that particular subject. Uh, our delight in the Bible is this and so much more. Because we're not just learning about something. We're not learning about just learning about a subject called God. 
but we are growing in a relationship with someone. The God of the universe. This is why the happy person is happy. I've read this quote by Francis Schaeffer. You guys know I love Francis Schaeffer, but I love his expression of his love for the Word of God. And I just want to read that for you again because I think it catches the sentiment that we should have as believers about God's Word. This is what he writes. He says, I don't love this book because it has a leather cover and golden edges. I don't love it as a holy book. I love it because it's God's book. Through it, the Creator of the universe has told us who He is, how to come to Him through Christ, who we are and what all reality is. Without the Bible, we wouldn't have anything. It may sound melodramatic, but sometimes in the morning I reach for my Bible and just pat it. I'm so thankful for it. If the God who is there had created the earth and then remained silent, we wouldn't know who He is. But the Bible reveals the God who is there. That's why I love it. Psalm 119 verse 47 catches what Schaefer is saying here and reminds us that if we want to delight in the Word, we must first love it. And if we, want, and if we delight in the, in the Word, we will then love it. The psalmist says, For I find my delight in your commandments which I love. So how do you get to that place? How do you get to that place like Francis Schaeffer or like the psalmist where our poet tells us that it's by meditating on the Word day and night? So three quick questions to kind of help with some application here. First, what is meditation? And meditation in the Bible is different than what your mind probably, probably went to when I said the word meditation. Uh, the word meditate in, in the original Hebrew means more than uh, mindfulness and listening for the voice of God in your inner silence. That's not what the Bible teaches meditation is. In the Bible, meditation is a pouring over the Scriptures. It's a studying of, an applying of, it's a praying of, and a speaking of all of God's teaching in His Word. All of that takes place in meditation. Second, how do you meditate? Simply. You open your Bible in the morning, and you open your Bible in the evening, and you do these very things. Now, let me just say that because some of you might be going, that's legalistic. You know, how can I get in the Bible twice a day? I already struggle to get in it once a day or even once a week. I don't know. Uh, but that's not, this, the psalmist didn't just put that there just to, just to, to make it seem like, uh, to, to give you some like, oh, well, you should be in the Word all the time. He is literally giving you like some specific application there. Beginning your day in the Word and ending your day in the Word. That's a specific application. And, and, and this is what you should be doing in it. Meditating on it day and night. Pouring over it. Reading it. Studying it. Praying it. Speaking of it with your family and, or, or with your roommates. Texting it to someone. Encouraging people with it. You might 
study it in the morning time when you, you might have more, more time in the morning to study or, and you might read it at night or you might, you might pray it on your way to work, whatever text it, it is that you read that morning. You may listen to it on a podcast or something like that. You, you, may, you may do any of those things. But the Scriptures are calling you to meditate upon the Word day and night. As a Christian, you cannot live without it. So I would encourage you to start today. And you can count, I'll give you permission, you can count this time right now as your daytime meditation if you haven't had that already. So this is your daytime meditation. And then before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, take up the Word and read. And before you know it, like Francis Schaeffer, you'll be leaning over and patting your Bible in the morning because you do love it. And you do delight in it. And you long for it every day. Not because you get to check it off your, your checklist of Bible reading, but because you are getting to know the God who is there and who loves you. Third question. Why do we meditate? Two, two verses. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I know the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers love that verse because of that. So if you read your Bible, God's going to bless you with money, and that's, that's a total lie. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that when you read the Word, when you're meditating on the Word day and night, that the Scriptures put reality in its proper order and proper light. So getting a raise at work is not, is not you going, oh, I'm prosperous now. Getting a raise at work is a way in which you can turn back your praise to God and say, God provides all that I need. That's the reality. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve life in general. God gives it to me. And the only way that we can think that way is if we are saturating ourselves with the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 92, uh, says something similar. If your law had not been a delight, if your law had not been a delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So the law is going to prepare you to suffer well. So again, putting reality in its proper order and proper light, it's framing reality according to who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. So now you can look at all of life and no matter what is going on, you can still be happy and know that you are blessed by God. And verse 3 proves this. Look there with me. Our poet says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. That means it never withers. In all that he does, he prospers. So the one who is meditating on the Scriptures is like a healthy tree. They have everything they need. Uh, they're, they're rooted by, by streams. They're in the best place they could possibly be. They're bearing fruits. Uh, their, their leaves don't wither. It's, it's alive. It's alive. 
And then, listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah again, who almost quotes Psalm 1 verbatim in chapter uh, 17, verse 8, where Brett read for us earlier, that opens, I think it opens Psalm 1, 3 up a little bit more. So scripture, scripture interprets Scripture here, and so this is what's happening. It reads, He, talking about the blessed person or the happy person, is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. I hope you caught that. Because I want you to notice that the writer does, uh, does not say that heat won't come for those who are in Christ. The writer does not say that the drought will not come for those who are in Christ. He actually says that heat and drought, the things that are most deadly to a healthy tree, will come. Yet those planted by streams, those who meditate on God's Word day and night, those who know God in Christ and therefore understand at least the Lord's work and the Lord's way, will not be anxious about that. Now you may not get excited about it, but, but those who are in this predicament, who are meditating on God's Word day and night, who are a healthy tree, understand and believe God when He says things uh, like He says in places like Romans 8.28. When He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. So I met a man this week at the gym who told me this tragic story. I just asked him about his family and he just started telling me this of how he, him and his wife uh, lost their baby boy two months uh, after he was born. They just lost him in December. But not only that, they knew from the, from the I think the second month of their pregnancy that their baby boy, when he was born, that he would not live long. And so they were encouraged to have abortions and and, and, and do, do different things to, to, to get rid of the baby. And he said to me, it was the hardest thing they've ever had to walk through in their entire lives. And they're only 26 years old. Deep pain, deep darkness that he was still experiencing right at that moment. But do you know what he was able to say to me still? Even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his depression that he was saying that he was experiencing, that he had never experienced before in his entire life, even in the darkness, that God is good, that he felt his presence in a very real way during that time and continued to do so. Here was someone who could say that even when the storm clouds were settling in, even when the drought was coming, even when the heat was beating down upon them, their leaves never withered. Their fruit continued to grow. And they were still planted by those streams. They were never moved. They were able to see that those who delight in the Word of God, those who, who set their hearts with Christ, don't wither in the darkness, but rather continue to grow and produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, these last two verses close out the, the first psalm fittingly. Because it distinguishes between two destinies. 
the wicked's destiny and the Christian's destiny. But I think what you need to recognize in this final point is not to make this into some uh, moral checklist, because that is still the danger here. It's to say, oh, well, if I spend time in the Word this morning and I spend time in the Word this evening and I do that seven days a week, that's 14 times in the Word, and I'm terrible at math, but that's a lot, you know, during the, the rest of the year, and you think, man, I got it. God is pleased with me. That is not what the psalmist wants you to get out of this. What he wants you to get out of this is the dilemma that you and I are in. Because apart from Christ, you are the chaff that the wind blows away. You are the one who is not rooted by streams of living waters. Apart from Christ, the psalmist says, you won't be able to stand in judgment because you, on your own, will be crushed by it. That's what the psalmist means there when he says that the wicked won't stand in judgment, which, which could read that um, they won't be able to stand in judgment because they'll be standing there on their own merit and they will be crushed by it. They can't do it. Psalm 76.7 asks the question, Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? And God is angry at sin. Nahum 1.6 asks a similar question. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces. And the only answer to that question is only one can do that. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not you, not me. We cannot stand in the judgment of God apart from Christ because the way of the righteous that our poet is telling us about is the way of Jesus who describes himself in John chapter 14 verse 6 as the way and the truth and the life. And who also says in John 6, uh, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then elsewhere we read that because of this belief, we are then counted righteous. We are now considered this blessed person, this blessed man, this blessed woman, this happy Person because we have the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we can avoid walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. And that's why we can delight in the Word of God is because of Christ. And the only reason this can be credited to you is because Christ Jesus is the man portrayed in the opening verses of Psalm 1. He is the blessed man. He is the one who avoided all kinds of evil. He's tempted in every way and did not sin. He was the one who delighted in the law. He delighted in his father's words and he obeyed them fully. He is the only one who is really like this. 
As the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce put it, he says, he is the only perfect man who ever lived, and he is the sinner's Savior. He is the one who stood under God's judgment for you so that you can stand in his presence without guilt and without shame. Jesus is the one who makes you the happy one. And he is the one who shows us the way to live and helps us do it. Amen. Let me pray. Father, again, we're thankful um, to be gathered around your word. We're thankful that you are the one who has given us your word, as uh, as Francis Schaeffer uh reminded us that it, this book is about you. This book is about how you change all of reality in Christ. This is, this is the way in which we are to live our lives. This is where, where, where life comes from for us as, as, your, as your children. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who know that we are happy uh, not in whatever it means to us, but that we are happy because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that He stood in the judgment, that He took on your wrath, and that He rose again, that He stood again, and now is seated at the right hand of your throne, God. So we are, we are thankful that that is not something that we had to accomplish, that, but that Jesus accomplished for, for us. And so I pray that that would make us a happy people. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.